Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Calmly Create Wealth Podcast, Asset Allocation Edition. My name is Marcel Maris, and I'm a portfolio strategist for Century Funds. Today on the podcast, we have James Dukavich, a co-CIO for CI Multi-Asset Management. He brings over 20 years of experience successfully managing fixed income and managed solutions through the tech bubble, the financial crisis, and currently the COVID pandemic. Today, we'll ask James about the relevance of a 60-40 balance fund given extremely low yields. We'll talk about Joe Biden's pick for the U.S. Treasury Secretary, the fiscal policy response. And lastly, we'll ask James to provide his outlook and asset mix over the next six to 12 months. So question number one, James, with 10-year Canadian government bond yielding only 68 basis points, the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yielding only 84 basis points, I want to ask you, how valid is the 60-40 balance fund with government bond exposure? And why do we continue to hold these government bonds? And what are the benefits? Great question, Marcel. Um, yeah, without a doubt, over the last sort of 25, 30 years, uh, the 60-40 portfolio, uh, 60 equity, 40 bonds uh, performed you know, admirably. Um, and there were cases and instances where volatility, uh, a volatility shock hit, economic recession hit, and bond yields uh, were at a level that they could fall substantially and add positive uh, capital gains and positive returns to offset the weakness in equity markets. So the question here with, uh, as you noted, uh, 10-year yields well below 1%, both in Canada and the US, is there, you know, is there any validity to holding them? And the answer is yes, but probably not in the same um, size as previously. The reason why I think that the answer is still yes to hold some um, uh, government bonds is that it, it, even though the total return is probably less than can be expected uh, or less than we would have experienced in previous uh, uh, shocks, um, there's still probably about 50 to 60 basis points, uh, which would produce somewhere around four to five percent capital gains. Uh, if we were to have a really bumpy winter, um, you know, some kind of disappointment with the vaccine. Um, or, you know, uh, a change in, the, in a mutation of the virus. So anything that really bad happened over, this, over the winter, um, there's 4 to 5% capital gains in U.S. 10 years and Canadian 10 years, which isn't sort of the 10% gain you would have seen before, but it's still not a bad um, uh, potential capital gains. What do you do when you, if we're not going to have as much government bonds in a portfolio, what can you do? Well, I think that one of the key things is um, obviously you can go into weaker bonds. So you could go into high quality investment grade. You could go into lower quality investment grade. You can go into higher quality, high yield. Where, uh, and what I mean by that is, is really good sound companies that happen to be rated double B, uh, but the default rate on double Bs is still less than 1%. So you're not looking at a lot of default risk. You're really looking at some reasonable credit and spread pickup. Another alternative would be to look at um, the preferred portion of the capital stack of a number of different businesses. Uh, financial companies, so banks and insurance companies tend to have uh, issuance at that level. Uh, pipelines, utilities tend to have issuance at that level. And even though yields have come down on that space as well, they're still somewhere between sort of four and a half, five percent, which isn't bad given where current inflation is, but really where current government bond yields are. 
And then finally, I think a little bit more uh, risk-taking uh, is judicious to preserve income uh, and reduce some of the uh, duration risk that's in government bonds. And I think the key there is understanding uh, where your cash flows will be coming from in the future. And if you can identify high quality cash flows that will be paid out uh, over the next sort of three to five years um, and, and not necessarily worry about the present value calculation of those future cash flows because the market will fluctuate and uh, based upon uh, an assessment of, of risk, uh, uh, what those future cash flows are worth today. Um, the important thing is if you can identify that those cash flows will be paid over the next three to five years, and those cash flows are, are significantly higher than the government bond, then you need to uh, take a little bit more mark to market risk, uh, but reduce your income risk, if that makes any sense. So you might have a quarter or two where the value of those cash flows today, the market judges them to be lower, but as long as those cash flows are paid, then your income is protected and your income is higher with those securities than with government bonds. So I think it's a blend of things you have to do now. Um, and maybe the 60-40 has become a sort of 60, 30, five and five, you know, five being somewhere lower in the capital structure or a combination of high quality, high yield, and then maybe five or so more that has to go into income producing equities. Okay, that's great. That's very helpful for our listeners. Now, recently, Joe Biden announced Janet Yellen, the former chair of the Federal Reserve, as his pick for the U.S. Treasury Secretary. Now, what do you expect from her in terms of a fiscal response when the monetary response seems to be maxed out? And do you see Janet Yellen's policy having an impact on U.S. dollar? And would you raise U.S. dollar hedges at this point? Um, so firstly, uh, I think it's a, it's a wise choice. I think this cements... Uh, during Biden's, uh, you know, four years that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury uh, Department will work hand in glove. Obviously, Janet has got a lot of contacts and is thought highly of uh, within the Federal Reserve. And so, but we have to remember Janet Yellen, when she was running the Fed, uh, and before that, when she was at the San Francisco Fed, her background is, a, is as an, a, a labor economist. And as the chairman of the Fed, um, you know, she was very uh, reluctant to begin tightening interest rates, um, even though the unemployment rate kept falling and falling. And as it was falling, there were a number of times where the level with which the Fed had publicly said that they were likely to believe we were at full employment and there'd be some inflationary pressures, the unemployment rate continued to fall past that level, and yet Janet Yellen did not act. What she, was, what she said at those points in times was the unemployment rate is an imperfect measure of the slackness in the labor market and therefore wage uh, inflationary pressure. So I would expect to see Janet Yellen as a Treasury Secretary continue to think about the bottom half or the bottom quarter of the labor force. In other words, um, I would think that she would push the Fed to maybe not worry so much about corporate bond support in their, in their QE, but worry about Main Street lending. Worry about, uh, and she will probably be looking to continue to put programs forward that protect payrolls, protect uh, rent payments, um, and, and focus more on Main Street than Wall Street uh, 
in a combination of what she will do from a fiscal perspective and the programs that she'll work hand in, with, hand in glove with with the Fed to focus more on areas of the economy uh, that affect uh, those without a lot of capital. Now, what does that do for the U.S. dollar? It's a bit ambiguous. Uh, I think the U.S. dollar has, has been weak over the last sort of call it five or six months. Uh, it's at some key levels, you know, versus the yen, it's versus the euro. Um, and I think it's a story of, well, the U.S. is sort of in the position now with QE or a lot of other countries. And the positioning was such that the U.S. dollar was uh, at, during the pandemic, it, it you know people got very bullish on the pan, on the U.S. dollar in response to the early stages of the pandemic, and those positions have to be reversed out. I think it'll be interesting in 2021. I don't have a crystal ball, and I don't have a high conviction view. Um, I'm probably 60/40 that I think the U.S. dollar will do slightly better from these levels over the next 12 months, but it's not a pound the table call. I do believe that the U.S. will experience the best best economic growth. The tricky thing is U.S. equities uh, are significantly higher valued than uh, European equities, Canadian equities, uh, U.K. equities, and certain emerging market equities. And the expectation from the vaccine data that we've gotten so far of a reopening of the global economy six months from now in the summer of 2021 means a rotation into cyclicals a rotation into things that have been underperforming is very likely. And if you look at the earnings growth potential, it's clear that if the global economy broadly reopens in six to nine months, that the earnings growth of markets other than the U.S. is more attractive than the earnings growth in the U.S. So even though economic growth will probably be the highest in the U.S., the Fed will probably be innovative and create and, and continue to create QE based momentum. And the fiscal is likely to be there a, a bit more in the, in the first quarter as the infection rates are gonna be high in the winter. All that should lead to good economic outcomes in the US. However, the assets are already been priced at a higher level than other markets. So I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. I don't think Treasury Secretary Yellen is, is a significant positive or negative for the U.S. dollar. I think it's more around relative growth rates, relative amounts of QE, and then ultimately, if the economies do reopen, it'll be about the relative attractiveness of various stock markets. Okay, that's great. And one last question. Can you provide your market outlook over the next six to 12 months? And also, given the positive results we're seeing in vaccination trials and and again, with, as you mentioned, with ongoing fiscal and mon monetary stimulus, are you adjusting your allocation more aggressively, uh, more risk on within fixed income and equities? Sure. Um, the short answer is we're not really adjusting much right now. If you look at the month of November, it's, it's going to be one of the strongest, if not the strongest, uh, equity returns uh, in history. Uh, European stock markets are up high uh, high teens, 18 to 20%. North America is looking at, you know, low teens. Um, and this is really in response to um, the, the, the vaccine data we talked about. And I guess a little bit of the election uncertainty being behind us, but I, I would put more weight on the vaccine. Um, 
the S&P 500, as an example, pulled back twice to kind of a 32.50, 32.25 level uh, back in September uh, and October, early October. And those are really going to be key uh, technical levels to see if the market uh, can pull back to that level again over the next couple of months, given what we all expect to be uh, weakened economic activity around, you know, the winter-based spike in infections. Um, the vaccines are only going to be of a limited help over the next two to three months. So from a, temp from a time horizon perspective, it's not uh, clear to me that the performance of the stock market in November can continue unabated because the back half of 21, six, eight months from now, the vaccines will be widely distributed and global economies reopen. That's a really good story six months from now. The stock market's forward looking, but we've already got elevated in the last three to four weeks and we've got some near-term turbulence. So my objective over the next two to three months is to look uh, at periods of turbulence and, and economic softness when uh, risk-free assets rally and risky assets sell off is to continue to trim your duration, continue to trim your interest rate sensitives and look to add to equities on reasonable sell-offs, okay? It's not gonna be a slam dunk. We're already positioned overweight equities and overweight credit. If the market never pulls back, then we're going to perform well. Uh, but it, I don't expect that that's a, that's a rational uh, outlook, uh, given the performance in the last three to four weeks and given the near-term uh, he uh, headwinds coming from the coronavirus. As opposed to just a level on the S&P, though, I think a more fascinating story underneath the stock market index is the rotation away from what really, really outperformed the last 12 months. Uh, growth, secular growers, large cap tech, that story, and that rotation into um, financials and real estate, more cyclicals. Um, it's, it, it's moved a fair bit in the last two or three weeks on the back of the vaccine and the hopeful uh, and the hope for the reopening. But when you look at it on a 12 month chart, it's barely a wiggle. And that's the degree of outperformance. Uh, of the growth sector versus the value sector over the last 12 months. So I think that rotation will continue to, to continue to occur. It'll be choppy. It also won't be in a straight line, but I think that will be more enduring. And the stock market might bounce around and the index levels might not be that much higher six months from now, but the composition of what's performing and what isn't performing um, could change mightily. And I think that's probably where the story in the active stock selection and sector rotation will be key. That's a great comment at the end. And I think that's the topic for our next podcast. I actually looked at 30 year difference in performance for small caps versus large caps in the US. So Russell 2000 versus Russell 1000. And it's about two and a half standard deviation uh, below the mean. And so that's the highest that we've seen over the last 30 years. And the last time I was at about um, two standard deviation, the small cap outperformed quite handsomely. And again, that, that difference is even greater if you look at small cap value versus the S&P 500. And one year out after that standard deviation was over two and a half percent, small caps outperform, small cap value stocks outperform by about 40%. So yes, the difference is quite large. 
but that's on for the next podcast. So James, that was very insightful and we appreciate your top-down perspective. For the listeners, if you want to know more about CI Century Balance Funds Managed Solutions, check out ci.com. Join us next week for another update on Century Funds. Thank you and have a great day. This podcast is provided as a general source of information and should not be considered personal, legal, accounting, tax, or investment advice, or construed as an endorsement or recommendation of any entity or security discussed. Investors should seek the advice of professionals prior to implementing any changes to their investment. Certain statements in this podcast are forward-looking that are predictive in nature, depend upon, or refer to future events or conditions. Forward-looking statements are subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those set forth. Although the forward-looking statements contained herein are based upon what CI Global Asset Management and the Portfolio Manager believe to be reasonable assumptions, neither CI Global Asset Management nor the Portfolio Manager can assure that actual results will be consistent with these forward-looking statements. Certain statements contained in this podcast are based in whole or in part on information provided by third parties, and CI Global Asset Management has taken reasonable steps to ensure their accuracy. Market conditions may change, which may impact the information contained in this podcast. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compounded total returns, net of fees and expenses, payable by the fund, including changes in security value and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions, and do not take into account sales, redemption, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.